Welcome, everybody, uh, to the first um, panel of this afternoon's conference. Um, I, uh, there's this uh, Fluxus poet, Jackson Michelow, who very famously did a reading where, a poetry reading where he actually just read the phone book. Um, and I'm sorry, it's your time just to read the CVs of our, uh, uh, our two um, presenters because uh, uh, it would have the same kind of effect. But in, in the interest of time, um, uh, we're going to be hearing two talks. Uh, the first will be uh, from Timothy Morton, who is a professor of English uh, at the University of California at Davis. Um, Morton is the author of many books. Um, most recently, uh, The Ecological uh, Thought from Harvard, uh, 2010, and Ecology Without Nature, also published by Harvard in 2007. Uh, he also writes on a number of other topics, including uh, literature, ecology, philosophy, food, and music, and blogs regularly at uh, www.ecologywithoutnature. Dot, uh, dot blogspot.com and his talk today will be called Sublime Objects. Uh, the next speaker after Timothy Morton will be Eleanor Kaufman. Uh, Eleanor Kaufman is, uh, teaches here at UCLA in the Comparative Literature Department and she is the author of many, many articles and books. Um, most notably, or I'll just mention uh, uh, two that are about to come out. Uh, the first is called At, At Odds with Bagieu, uh, colon, Politics, Dialectics, and Religion, from Sartre and Deleuze to Lacan and Agamben. And it's coming out from Columbia University Press. And the second book that is also forthcoming is a book on Deleuze uh, called uh, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Dialectic, Structure, and Being. And that's coming out from Johns Hopkins. Uh, Eleanor Kaufman's talk will be called Sartre and Object Classification. So please welcome um, Timothy Morton and then Eleanor Kaufman. Thank you so much for that. I'm, d I'm deeply uh, touched to be here. Um, and thank you so much, Ken and Julia, for organizing this. Um, I'm sorry I forgot my Peter Gabriel flower uh, costume <laughs> I was going to wear. Um, and um, also, it needs to be said that, that I've never said this before to, to any scholar, but um, Graham's work really changed my life, and I owe him for that. Um, changed my life in a good way. <laughs> so, um, I believe philosophy should be about everything. I believe that object-oriented ontology is something truly new in the world. If so, it couldn't have come along at a better time. Because something, true in the new, because something truly new in human history is happening, something we call global warming, something we call the sixth mass extinction event. For some months now, I've been thinking about entities I call hyper-objects. These are objects that are massively distributed in time and space. Hyper-objects become visible to humans in an age of ecological crisis. Indeed, it's really the other way around. Hyper-objects have alerted us to the ecological crisis that defines our age. For instance, um, global warming and nuclear radiation from, from plutonium. I believe that object-oriented ontology gives us some much-needed tools for thinking about hyper-objects. And I've been studying the various properties of hyperobjects. They're non-local, they're foreshortened in time, they're viscous, they have the strange quality of sticking to you the more that you try to shake them off. The more you know about them, the more you figure out how enmeshed you are in them, the more you know about them, the more strange and even terrifying they become. To understand this, we badly need an upgraded theory of the sublime, which deals in scary and unknowable things. 
And if we're going to do that, we might as well take on the whole issue of rhetoric as it pertains to objects. It's in this spirit of working towards a greater understanding of our ecological emergency that I offer this paper, and so to business. Slinky Malinky was blacker than black, a stalking and lurking adventurous cat. He had bright yellow eyes, a warbling wail, and a kink at the end of his very long tail. He was cheeky and cheerful, friendly and fun. He'd chase after leaves and he'd roll in the sun, but at night he was wicked and fiendish and sly. Through moonlight and shadow he'd prowl and he'd pry. He crept along fences, he leapt over walls, he poked into corners and sneaked into halls. What was he up to? At night, to be brief, Slinky Malinky turned into a thief. All over town, from basket and bowl, he pilfered and pillaged, he snitched and he stole. Slippers and sausages, biscuits, balloons, brushes and bandages, pencils and spoons. He pulled them, he dried them, he heaved them, until he carried them home to his house on the hill. One rascally night, between midnight and four, Slinky Malinky stole more than before. Some pegs and a teddy bear, dressed up in lace, a gardening glove from McCavity's place, a tatty old sneaker, a smelly old sock, and Jennifer Turkington's pottery smock, a squishy banana, some glue and a pen, a cushion from Oliver Tulliver's den, a clock and some bottles, a pair of blue jeans, a half-knitted jersey, a packet of beans. He pulled them, he dragged them, he heaved them, until he carried them home to his house on the hill. Then Slinky Malinky, rapscallion cat, piled them up high in a heap on the mat. The glue toppled over and gummed up the pegs. The jersey unravelled and tangled his legs. He tripped on the bottles and slipped on the sock. He tipped over sideways and set off the clock. Crash went the bottles. Beep, beep went the clock. Roll, 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 roll went the dogs on the block. On went the lights. Bang went the door. And out came the family. One, two, three, four. Oh no, they all said. What a criminal cat. Tomorrow we'll have to take everything back. With a tangled up middle and glue on his face, Slinky Malinky was deep in disgrace. Never again did he answer the call when moon shadows danced over garden and wall. When whispers of wickedness stirred in his head, he adjusted his whiskers and stayed home instead. <laughs> That's the end of my talk. Now, if a children's book can talk about objects in this way, why can't philosophy? Let's put it in even starker terms. A simple children's book tells me more about real things than most contemporary philosophy. Why? Now, to deliver anything to us humans so we can see it, you need rhetoric. Yes, that's right. You need some kind of glamour. It would be churlish, wouldn't it, to point fingers at this and go, Hey, gotcha! Using a human tool to describe non-human entities busted. I mean, come on, what are we object-oriented types supposed to do? Just sort of belch so you can smell the pizza? <laughs> so in this talk, I'm going to suggest that rhetoric isn't just ear candy for humans or even for sentient beings. I'm going to suggest that rhetoric is what happens when there is an encounter between any object, that is, between alien beings. Heidegger comes to the rescue since his essay language is about anything but language is a sign for something. More like language is an alien entity in its own right. Language is a kind of object. And language is full of objects. Take on a matopia. Okay, guns go par in French and bang in English, but neither do they go cluck or boing. Bang and par are linguistic contributions by guns. Before they're French and English, they're gunnish and get translated into human like plop and splat, crack, growl, tintinabulation and susurrate and beep and row, 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 row. And even perhaps visual terms such as shimmer and sparkle. These sorts of words are a kind of sonic translation of a visual effect the rapid diffusion of light across a moving surface. Shimmering is to light as muttering is to sound. Language is not totally arbitrary and not totally human, even from a non-Heideggerian perspective. 
Then there's the fact that language always occurs in a medium, what Roman Jacobson calls the contact. Media translate and are translated by messages. We never hear a voice as such, only the voices carried by the wind, or by electromagnetic waves, or by water, or by a kazoo. Water makes whales sound like they do. Air and gravity make humans speak certain words in certain ways. Valleys encourage yodeling. These directives don't simply float around words, but emanate from words themselves. What's happening when I read Slinky Malinky? You're picking up on my delivery, my voice, the way my son inspires me to speak. The story contains words that want to be read in a certain way, that make you hear them a certain way. The words and rhythms and rhymes are directives that guide my voices and gestures as I deliver the text. There are five parts of rhetoric. Invention, ordering, style, memory and delivery. And I'm going to argue that delivery is in fact the first part of object-oriented rhetoric, not the fifth. Why? Because rather than simply being the envelope in which the message is handed to you, delivery is the message, directly. Delivery is the object and its weird, clownish hypocrisy. Delivery has memory, a certain persistence. Memory is the way an object maintains or not its consistency, the way it conjures and is possessed by phantasmal memories and dreams, the thousand shocks that flesh is heir to. Delivery has style, imagery floating free from the object's surface. We'll see how important this is when we study ekphrasis in a moment. Delivery has ordo and dispositio, an arrangement of notes and a tempo of parts. Delivery has inventio, an irreducible withdrawnness. There's a huge big picture here, totally to do with the long history of philosophy. In particular, it has to do with the separation of rhetoric from invention and ordering, or as they say, um, could, uh, what could be known, science and logic. This separation, a massive world historical event inaugurated by rhetoricians such as Peter Ramus in the Renaissance, defined earlier metaphysicians as scholastic pettifoggers obsessed with angels and pins. It gave rise to science as a separate discipline and the reduction of rhetoric to style and the subsequent withering of style into tropology and the subsequent withering of tropology into metaphor. So that when we read Demand or Dawkins or Derrida or Dennett, we're still reading someone fully caught in the Ramus pinball machine that divides style from substance. This affects everything. It's deeply about how ontology has become taboo. It's about how the aesthetic arose as a dimension separate from and even hostile to rhetoric. Consider Kant's opposition to rhetoric. It's about how philosophy has become obsessed with perfect arguments rather than suggestive cognitive work, as Graham puts it so well in the final chapter of Prince of Networks. It's why the only alternative to perfect freeze-dried arguments is sheer tropological play. It's why there is a desperate search for new and improved forms of metaphysics, such as the lava lampy materialisms on offer currently, which are in fact a regression, even from the choice between freeze-dried perfection and powdered nothingness. So in this talk, I'm going to say a lot of counterintuitive stuff, because I think that OOO takes us out of the pinball machine precisely because it imagines style as an elementary aspect of causality rather than as candy on top of lumps of stuff bumping together indifferently. We could rewrite the whole of rhetoric as object-oriented by reversing the implicit order of Aristotle's five parts of rhetoric. Instead of starting with invention and proceeding through disposition to elocution, then on to memory and delivery, we should start with delivery. Delivery is precisely the physicality of your rem, your speech. Demosthenes used to practice his delivery by filling his mouth with pebbles and walking up hill. Pebbles and hills played a part in Demosthenes' rhetoric. But we'll see that rhetoric is far more concerned with non-human entities than that. We will find that reversing the order explodes the teleology implicit in common assumptions about rhetoric, common, for instance, in composition classes. First you have an idea, then you figure out how to argue it, then you pour on some nice ear candy, then you recite it or upload it or whatever. Withdrawn objects do not exist in order to anything. 
We often assume that delivery is secondary to rhetoric, kind of like the volume control or the equaliser on a stereo. It's a matter of conditioning the externals of rhetoric. This isn't what Demosthenes and Cicero thought. Asked to name the most important parts of rhetoric, Demosthenes replied, first, delivery. Second, delivery. Third, delivery. At which point his interlocutor conceded, but Demosthenes was ready to go on. If we rethink delivery not as a bottle into which the already existing argument is poured like a liquid, nor as an envelope that delivers um, the message like mail, but as a physical object, an essential medium. Um, we will be thinking of it like Quintilian, who says of great actors that, quote, they add so much to the charm of even the greatest poets that the verse moves us far more than when heard than when read, while they succeed in securing a hearing even for the most worthless authors, with the result that they repeatedly win a welcome on the stage that is denied them in the library. The object-oriented explanation for this is that the voice, an object with its own richness and hidden depths, translates the words it speaks, a spooky evocation of the secret heart of objects, not via revelation, but via obscurity, as if, mind you, as if it were summoning forth an obscure dimension of language. Quintilian um, discusses Quintus Hortensius, whose voice must have possessed some charm for people to rank him second only to Cicero, given how awful his written speeches appeared. Now, before you go accusing me of logocentrism, realise that it's not that voice really gives access to the hidden depth of meaning. It's that voice is an object in its own right, vibrating with uncanny overtones. Like ekphrasis, like metaphor, voice leaps forward towards us, unleashing its density and opacity. Voice has, as Graham puts it, a lure. We can proceed from thinking of voice as an object in its own right to asserting that a pencil resting on the inside of a plastic cup is a delivery of a pencil. A certain kind of physical posture similar to a loud voice or a cajoling whine. A house's delivery, disporting its occupants and its rooms and its backyard into various configurations. A record player is delivery, as is an MP3 player. A book is delivery. A waterfall is delivery. A computer game is delivery. A spoon is delivery. A volcano is delivery. A ribbon is delivery. A black hole is delivery. Working backwards, we'd end up with Inwentio. We could say that Inwentio was actually object withdrawal, a dark or reverse Inwentio, covery rather than discovery. Object-oriented rhetoric is not the long march towards the explicit, but a gravitational field that sucks us into the implicit secrecy and silence. Graham argues that metaphor makes even the sensual qualities of objects which seem readily available to us seem withdrawn. What metaphor does, then, is not unlike another trope which the old manuals call obscurum per obscures, describing something obscure by making it seem even more obscure. Percy Shelley was all over this trope. His images in, in darken rather than enlighten. If we generalise this to the whole of rhetoric, object-oriented rhetoric becomes the way objects obscure themselves in fold upon fold of mysterious robes, caverns, fortresses of solitude and octopus ink. Instead of looking at the five parts of rhetoric as a step-by-step -step recipe for making meaning explicit, first you pick a subject, then you organise your argument, we could see them as simultaneous aspects of any object that render that object mysterious and strange, yet direct and in your face. Accounting for them in this way presents us from distorting them as present-at-hand entities or metaphysical substances decorated with accidents. There's a plastic cup, and now we add some colour, now we see it has a certain shape, etc. This simultaneity of aspects accounts for what musicians call timbre, a word that conjures up the substantiality of timber. A note played on a plastic cup sounds very different from the same note played on a smoothly polished wooden cylinder. Timbre is the sensual appearance of an object to another object, in contrast to Zabiri's notes, which are aspects of the hidden dimension of the thing. So rhetoric, in an object-oriented sense, is the way the timbre of an object 
manifest. If we started with delivery, the availability of essential object would immediately unfold, a host of mysterious qualities that spoke in strange whispers about the object of which they are aspects. Delivery deforms what it delivers, and the delivery, stuttering, stuttering and caricaturing them, remixing and remastering them. Working backwards, the essential object persists. Memoria. It displays a unique style, elocutio. It organises its notes and parts, dispositio and audio, and it contains a molten core that withdraws from all contact, inventio. The plastic cup does this to the pencil. The garden does this to the house. The plastic cup even does it to itself. The parts of the cup deliver the whole in a more or less distorted way, accounting for various aspects of its history and presenting the cup with a certain style, articulated according to certain formal arrangements, and finally these qualities themselves are uncannily available for present-at-hand inspection. The molten core is wrapped within the delivery. Latin gives us a clue about this by translating the Greek for delivery, hypocrisis, as either actio or pronunciatio. We get the word hypocrisy from hypocrisis. It seems from the verb to it stems from the verb to judge or interpret. Objects interpret themselves. Yet in doing so, they are like actors, both dissembling and generating an entirely fresh set of objects, as an orchestra interprets a score by playing it. For instance, hypocrisis can signify the tone or manner of an animal's cry. The, the cry expresses the animal, yet it's also an object all its own. Pronunciatio is more like the manifest appearance of an object to another object. It speaks the, to the dissembling part of hypocrisis. Actio sounds more like execution, the dark unfolding of an object's hidden essence. Actio speaks to the way objects magically foam with being. Objects, then, are hypocrites, forever split from within. Personally, I'd rather live in a hypocritical universe than a cynical one. We've had quite enough of that. A symptom of how the standard philosophical game for 200 years has been, anything you can do, I can do meta. Is it not possible to imagine that an object-oriented rhetorical theory might account for vicarious causation, the only kind of causation possible between ontologically vacuum-sealed objects? Graham talks about elements or quality objects, the aspects of essential objects that somehow communicate with one another. Could my strange reverse rhetoric apply a, supply a model for this? Is it possible, then, that an element resembles a phrase or a rhetorical period? Graham hints that the linguistic trope of metaphor might be alluring precisely because it gives us a taste of some deeper causality. Can we imagine the interaction between a pen and a wooden table as made up of rhetorical phrases and periods, whereby the elements of one object persuade another? I'm thinking here of the Latin root of persuasion, suadio which has to do with how one object urges, impels, induces, or sways another. According, and now this is the section called a speculative sublime. According to object-oriented ontology, objects all have four aspects. They withdraw from access from other objects by other objects. They appear to other objects. They are specific entities, and that's not all, folks. They really exist. Aesthetically, then, objects are uncanny beasts. If they were pieces of music, they might be some impossible combination of uh, slapstick sound effects, Sufi singing, mala, and hardcore techno. If they were literature, they might exist somewhere between the Commedia dell'arte, the cloud of unknowing, war and peace, and waiting for Godot. Piero Lunaire might be a good metaphor for the grotesque, frightening, hilarious, sublime objects. The object-oriented sublime doesn't come from some beyond, because this beyond turns out to be a kind of optical illusion of correlationism. There's nothing underneath the universe of objects, or not even nothing, if you prefer to think it that way. The sublime resides in particularity, not in some distant beyond. And the sublime is generalizable to all objects insofar as what they are, what I've called, strange strangers, that is, alien to themselves and to one another in an irreducible way. Of the two dominant theories of the sublime, we have a choice between authority and freedom, e exteriority and interiority. Both, but both choices are correlationist. That is, both theories of the sublime have to do with human subjective access to objects. 
On the one hand, we have Edmund Burke, for whom the sublime is shock and awe, the experience of terrifying authority to which you must submit. On the other hand, we have Immanuel Kant, for whom the sublime is an experience of inner freedom based on some kind of temporary cognitive failure. Try counting up to infinity. You can't. But that is precisely what infinity is. The power of your mind is revealed in its failure to some infinity. Both in sublimes assume that, one, the world is specially or uniquely accessible to humans. Two, the sublime uniquely correlates to the world to humans. And three, what's important about the sublime is a reaction in the subject. Against these assumptions, I'm going to argue for a speculative sublime, an object-oriented sublime, to be more precise. There is a model for just such a sublime on the market, the oldest extant text on the sublime, Perihypsus by Longinus. The Longinian sublime is about the physical intrusion of an alien presence. The Longinian sublime can thus easily extend to include non-human entities, and I shall argue non-sentient ones. Rather than making ontic distinctions between what is and what isn't sublime, Longinus describes how to achieve sublimity, because he's more interested in how to achieve the effect of sublimity rhetorically um, than what the sublime is as a human experience. Longinus leaves us free to extrapolate all kinds of sublime events between all kinds of entities. Longinus' sublime is already concerned with an object like alien presence. He might call it God, but we could easily call it a styrofoam peanut or the great red spot of Jupiter. The way objects appear to one another is sublime. It's a matter of contact with alien presence and a subsequent work of radical translation. Longinus thinks this as contact with the soul of another. Quote, sublimity is the echo of a great soul. But we could extend this to include the sensuality of objects. Why not? So many supposedly mental phenomena manifest in an automatic way, as if they were objects. Dreams, hallucinations, strong emotions. Coleridge says about his opium dream that inspired Kublai Khan that the images arose as distinct things in his mind. This isn't surprising if cognition is an assemblage of kluge-like unit operations that just sort of do their thing. It's not that this pen is alive. It's that everything that is meaningful about my mind resting on the pen can also be said about the pen resting on the desk. Consciousness may be sought in the wrong place by neuroscientists and AI and anti-AI theorists. It may be incredibly default. So let's consider Longinus's terms. Luckily for object-oriented ontology, there are four of them. Transport, fantasia, clarity, and brilliance. Even more luckily, the four correspond to Graham's interpretation of the Heideggerian fourfold. The trick is to read the terms in reverse, as we did with rhetoric in general. The first two terms, clarity and brilliance, refer to the actuality of object-object encounters. The second two, transport and fantasia, refer to the appearance of these encounters. It sounds counterintuitive that brilliance would equate to withdrawal, but when you read what Plato, Longinus, and Heidegger have to say about this term, which in Greek is ekphenestaton, you will agree with me. Brilliance, earth, objects as withdrawn something at all apart from access. Clarity, gods, objects as specific apart from access. Transport, mortals, objects as something at all for another object. Fantasia, sky, objects as specific appearance to another object. We'll immediately see that each one sets up relations with an alien presence. Brilliance, known as to ekphenestaton, luster, brilliance, shining out. It's a superlative, so it really means superlative brilliance. Brilliance is the withdrawnness of the object. It's total inaccessibility. In the mode of the sublime, it's as if we were able to taste that, even though it's strictly impossible. Longinus compares it to the gushing magma of an exploding volcano, a description that's highly congruent with several places in Graham's work where he refers to the molten core of an object. The light of this magma is blinding. That's why it's withdrawal, strangely. It's right there. It's an actual object. Longinus thus calls this brilliance an uncanny fact of the sublime. For Plato, to ekphenestaton was an index of an essential beyond. For the object-oriented ontologist, brilliance is the appearance of the object in all its stark unity. Something is coming through, or rather we better, we realise that something was already there. 
This is the realm of the uncanny, the strangely familiar and the familiarly strange. Clarity, manifestation or self-evidence. This has to do with ekphrasis. Ekphrasis in itself is interesting for object-oriented ontology because ekphrasis is precisely an object-like entity that looms out of descriptive prose. It's hyper-descriptive part that jumps out at the reader, petrifying her or him, turning her to stone, causing a strange suspension of time, like bullet time in The Matrix. It's a little bit like what Deleuze means when he talks about time crystals in his study of cinema. This is the jumping out aspect of ekphrasis, a bristling vividness that interrupts the flow of the narrative, jerking the reader out of her or his complacency. Quintilian stresses the time-warping effect of enargeia, the term is metastasis or metathesis, transporting us in time as if the object had its own gravitational field into which it sucks us, the object in its bristling specificity. Longinus asserts that while sublime rhetoric must contain enargea, sublime poetry must evoke ekplexis, astonishment. This may also be seen as a kind of specific impact. In strictly uh, triple O terms, ekphrasis is a translation that inevitably misses the withdrawn object, but which generates its own kind of object in the process. Ekphrasis speaks to how objects move and have agency, despite our awareness or lack of awareness of them. Graham's analogy of the drug man in tool being provides a compelling example. Now, if, you get, if somehow you get it wrong, you end up with bombast. The limit where objects become vague, undefined, just clutter. The word bombast literally means stuffing, the kind you put in shoulder pads. Ekphrasis accounts for a phenomenon that pertains to hyperobjects, something I'm calling viscosity. The hyperobject is so massively distributed and so bizarre that it melts you, and then you realise you're covered in it or suffused in it like radiation. Transport. The narrator makes you feel something stirring inside you, some kind of divine or demonic energy, as if you were inhabited by an alien. Being moved. We can imagine the sublime as a kind of transporter, like in Star Trek, a device for beaming the alien object into another's ob ob object's frame of reference. Transport consists of sensual contact with objects as an alien universe. Just as the transporter can only work by translating particles from one place to another, so Longinian transport only works by one object translating another via its specific frames of reference. In so doing, we become aware of what was lost in translation. Transport thus depends upon a kind of void, the withdrawn reality of the universe of objects, the aspect that is forever sealed from access, but nevertheless thinkable. The machinery of transport, the transporter as such, is what Longinus calls amplification. Not bigness, but a feeling of, as Dr. Zeus puts it, biggering. A figure employed when the narrative admits from section to section of many starting points and many pauses, and elevated expressions follow one after the other in an unbroken succession and in an ascending order. The rhetoric embraces a multitude of details and produces a certain magnitude and abundance. By attuning our mind to the exploding notes of an object, amplification sets up a sort of subject quake, a soul quake. Fantasia, often translated as visualisation. Visualisation, not imagery, producing an inner object. It's imagery in you, not imagery in the text. Quintilian remarks that Fantasia makes absent things appear to be present. Fantasia conjures an object. If I say New York, and you're a New Yorker, you don't have to tediously picture each separate building and street. You sort of evoke New Yorkness in your mind. What I've, that's Fantasia. What I've called the poetics of spice operates this way. The use of the word spice, rather than the, say, cinnamon or pepper, in a poem acts as a blank, allowing for the work of olfactory imagination akin to visualisation. It's more like a hallucination than an intended thought. In stories, for instance, Fantasia generates an object-like entity that separates us from the narrative flow, puts us in touch with the alien as alien. Visualisation should be slightly scary. You're summoning a real deity, after all. You are asking to be overwhelmed, touched, moved, 
stirred. In object-oriented terms, fantasia is the capacity of an object to imagine another object. Sensual contact with the alien as a specific object. How paper looks to stone. How scissors look to paper. Do objects dream? Do they contain virtual versions of other objects inside them? These would be examples of fantasia, how one object impinges upon another one. There's too much of it. It magnetizes us with a terrible compulsion. Now, for an example of the Longinian sublime, take Graham's first great use of the meanwhile trope, which Mayasu calls the rich elsewhere in his paper Object-Oriented Philosophy. Meanwhile, beneath this ceaseless argument, reality is churning. Even as the philosophy of language and its supposedly reactionary opponents both declare victory, the arena of the world is jam-packed with diverse objects, their forces unleashed and mostly unloved. Red billiard ball smacks green, green billiard ball. Snowflakes glitter in the light that cruelly annihilates them. Damaged submarines rust along the ocean floor. As flour emerges from mills and blocks of limestone are compressed by earthquakes, gigantic mushrooms spread in the Michigan forest. While philosophers bludgeon each other over the very possibility of access to the world, sharks bludgeon tuna fish and icebergs smash into coastlines. All of these entities roam across the cosmos, inflicting blessings and punishments on everything they touch, perishing without a trace or spreading their powers further as if a million animals had broken free from a zoo in some Tibetan cosmology. <laughs> this is nobody's world. This is sort of the opposite of the stock-in-trade environmentalist rhetoric, which elsewhere I've called eco-mimesis. That is, here I am in this beautiful desert, and I can prove to you I'm here because I can write that I see a red snake disappearing into that creosote bush. Did I tell you I was in a desert? That's me here in the desert. I'm in a desert. This is no man's land. But it's not a bleak nothingness. Bleak nothingness, it turns out, is just the flip side of correlationism's world. No, this is a crowded Tibetan zoo, an expressionist parade of uncanny, clown-like objects. We're not supposed to kowtow to these objects, yet we're not supposed to find our inner freedom either. It's like one of those maps with the little red arrow that says, you are here, only this one says, you are not here. I call my talk Sublime Objects after Zizek, whose Sublime Object ideology was the first book of his I ever read back in 1991. Zizek's Sublime Object is a sublime for someone, not in itself, that is, among its constituent objects or with other objects. The Sublime Object of ideology is a correlationist sublime that really only has one message to deliver, that objects are an ideological fantasy that correlates the unattainable thing and the thing of mentation. Indeed, the analytic of the sublime is the place where Kant gives correlationism an aesthetic shape. Even better, Hegel argues, for Zizek, that is, that uh, nothing whatsoever lies on the other side of phenomenality. In contrast, the object-oriented sublime gets at something that's essential to objects, the withdrawnness and the way in which, at the same time, they manifest in all their scintillating particularity, the kind Longinus calls ekphenestaton. The sublime underpins other kinds of aesthetic interaction between objects, even ridiculous ones. Are there non-sublime interactions between objects? Of course. One can easily imagine, for instance, a ridiculous and in, uh, interaction between objects. The trick would be to ascertain whether the objects found the interaction ridiculous. A shoe meeting a banana skin might be a tragedy for either party, not a farce. <laughs> Slinky Malinky's theft of household objects produces a marvellous Latour litany, a frequent figure of speech in object-oriented ontology. It's frequent because Latour litanies are, are collections of non-repeating unique objects as diverse as possible, a sort of mini-revenge of unicities against global goo and global systems. Then the objects begin to malfunction. They unleash their forces on one another and the cat. Suddenly the family appears, but the objects by which they appear show up first. On went the lights, 
Bang went the door. We perceive this appearance in the framework of malfunctioning equipment. That's the sublime. The lights go on in an unconscious parody of Heidegger's Lichtung. On went the lights is the climax, the Enargea that beams the family down. They are seen as aliens in their own house. We need an object-oriented sublime in an ecological age. Google Earth wouldn't qualify as Kantian sublimity, it's too explicitly scientific, but it would count as Longinian, transporting us to real places. Ecological entities such as global warming need a Longinian sublime to evoke them. This re requires sensitivity to hyperobjects, contact with alien entities that are here among us now. We could apply the five parts of rhetoric to hyperobjects. Delivery is their sublime existence, memory is their temporal foreshortening and the fact that they're already here, style is their viscosity and non-locality, ordering is their properties as derivatives, byproducts and so on, that are more intense than the objects and relations in which they originate. Invention as the mysterious withdrawal common to all objects, but very obvious in their case at this moment to us. It would be a good start to look away from the supposed content of rhetoric and even away from styles such as metaphor or ekphrasis and towards the most physical form, delivery. Then truly we can say that by generating more sublime objects of tone, pitch, bearing, rhythm, talk, spin, non-locality, lineation, viscosity, tension, entanglement, syntax, climate, heft, density, nuclear fission, inertia, rhyme, Rhetoric really does give us a glimpse of real sensual things, things that even a cat and an 18-month-old boy can steal, read about, and get tangled up in. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>